Edge podcast, where we explore the backgrounds of interesting individuals and how they intersect with our building industry in Iowa. I'm your host, Ben Hammes, and I'm going to bring to you topics that help educate, develop, grow, and enhance you and your company. Welcome to the podcast, Cal Byer. Thanks for being here today. Great to see you, Ben. It's always nice to be at MBI. Yeah, it's fun. We're on our new podcast here, the MBI Edge, um, helping tell uh, the important story of, uh, of May being Mental Health Awareness Month, and uh, we're out trying to do our part to help stop the stigma as well and have these open conversations. Uh, you'll be our third podcast, I think, for this month uh, that we're trying to get out to our audience. But I guess before we get started, could you do an introduction for our audience? Yes, I'm Cal Byer. I'm the Vice President for Workforce Risk and Worker Wellbeing. I work for Holmes Murphy and Associates. We're based in Waukee. I get the privilege of working with contractors and associations, labor unions across the country, addressing workplace mental health, substance misuse, addiction, treatment, recovery, even opioid and overdose prevention. So talk to me about how you got to the position. How long have you been doing this? this how long have you been in this role? And maybe some of your qualifications. I started this job, Ben, March 16th of 2020. Okay. And the next day, the rest of the world went work from home. Yeah. So that first year was kind of interesting. I was teaching companies how to take care of people. And that included a number of large national labor unions and internationals. It became a powerful movement. For the prior seven years, I was director of risk management and oversaw safety for a paving contractor in the Pacific Northwest. So we were an asphalt producer and a paving contractor, about 700 employees. I went to that company because they allowed me to build mental health into our safety and risk culture. And I didn't show up just talking about workplace mental health. I talked a lot about occupational health and safety, talked about bringing safety as unusual, teaching people how to look out for one another. And it just became a powerful uh, movement. I'd been working on that for the prior 10 years in the construction industry as a consultant, and we never got it to a tipping point. There were several turning points. We were able to reframe safety as the next frontier. We were able to reframe safety 24-7, that it's not enough to get people home safe at the end of the shift. We need to get people back to work safe from home. But we hadn't gotten the traction in the pandemic. If there is going to be a silver lining, it could be that we've learned that we need to address mental health in the workplace. What incredible timing, March 16th to March 17th, and your strategies had to have shifted dramatically overnight. Almost overnight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, like a lot of people's, but I mean, in the role that you were playing, you, you, had, you had prepared for that role leading up to March 16th and March 17th, it, it changed. Almost overnight. <laughs> my last day of work at my former employer was March 13th. And on March 14th, on a Saturday night, about 10 o'clock, I received a telephone call. Don't come to Minneapolis for your orientation. Mm. Stay at home. We'll uh, readjust over the next several weeks. And um, that adjustment never happened. I ended up doing about 115 webinars that year. Wow. 35 different podcasts. And then it was just the opportunity to write articles, meet people where they were at, organizations, associations. How are we going to respond to these challenges that unraveled almost on a weekly basis? Wow. Well, you're here today because you've just wrapped up uh, an education course for uh, some of our members. You've been in the uh, training facility, our, our Elevate Business and Event Center, as we call it. This is your first time in the building, I think, right? No, I was here in February. You were here in February. Okay. And I love the facility. Well, good. 
I think the uh, Tom tells me that that uh, session was called Strategies for Building a Mentally Healthy Workforce. How'd it go? It went great. It was a long day. It was scheduled for uh, six hours. Brought in two outside speakers to supplement so they didn't have to listen to me the whole time. Okay. But we talked about strategies companies can use to build a mentally healthy workforce. And then we brought in the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Mm. And they taught a program called Talk Saves Lives. Mostly it was to familiarize every contractor that was here today with the resources of that great nonprofit. They provide a lot of support for organizations by doing training on site, but they also provide support for survivors of suicide. What's the name of the organization again? The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Okay, and that's a national organization, clearly. Do they have state chapters? Do they we do. bring in the Iowa folks here? We brought in okay. the Iowa chapter, okay. one of the board members, and she did a great job. And then we brought in Iowa State, the outreach and um, extension. They did a program called QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer. Mm. And that's a conversational style of teaching people about mental health and asking questions about suicide prevention. So through all of your consulting work in the last few years, I'm sure every session takes a life of its own. You take something away from that. I take it you're probably a lifelong learner like a lot of folks are. What were some of those takeaways today maybe that stood out with you? Today what was great was connecting contractors to local resources. Mm. We also had a contractor's panel. So we had three individuals, Brad Churchill. Mm-hmm. He's from uh, U.S. Erectors. We, we had, had him on our podcast uh, two days ago. Yeah, yeah, he called and thanked me for uh, recommending him. Oh, great. And uh, he said it was a great experience. And then I'm, we had, I'm not too hard. I'm not too hard-hitting. Yeah. You're easy, Tom. <laughs> or, uh, ben, and so is Tom. But we had Wendy uh, Hudson from White's and Tracy House from the Baker Group, and they did a great job. I always feel it's important to share local success stories uh-huh. so people can rely on what their neighbors and colleagues are doing. Sure. And that was very, very successful. Sure, sure. Now, I want to shift a little bit um, past, um, you know, you, you talked earlier about your, your work in the Pacific Northwest. I think it was Washington State. Is that right? Yes. So you've been around the country. You've done a lot of these sessions around the country. Are there any common themes or more importantly, are there any themes that you've seen in Iowa that stand out from other states? I would say right now, Ben, mental health is top of mind. Most organizations are recognizing that we can and should do more. So that's one positive. Number two, there still is a lot of stigma associated with mental health Mm -hmm. and suicide prevention. The biggest challenge I see is that the elephant in the room for our entire industry is substance misuse. Mm. And people are afraid to have those conversations. Today we went there, we started those conversations. People need more resources in that area. So Mm -hmm. if I had to summarize it, that would be one of those growing opportunities where we can make a real impact. That's great. I know you're familiar with, and I've talked about this in the podcast, and we had this had the folks from Goldfinch Health at the the Winter Conference because they're their story and, and what they're doing to me was just eye-opening. I mean, it was it was it was incredible. You've worked with them in the past. You know John and his team. Yes. Okay. And and you're I doing get sessions to, together. Yes, I've had the opportunity for the past uh, eighteen months to do some joint uh, training. Their core business is optimizing surgical outcomes, mm-hmm. but they're doing that through enhanced recovery around surgery. Mm-hmm. And the opioid risk reduction strategies are really successful. Mm -hmm. And you're very well aware 
been, and you've been instrumental in this, helping promote this to the MBI members. But the Iowa Attorney General's Office has done the Billion Pill Pledge Program right. to take this as a health equity issue out into the rural hospitals. Right. It's making a huge impact. It really is. We're seeing it in the news. Um, you know, I've been in contact with the Attorney General's Office on this, on this issue. And um, when you talk about the substance misuse being one of those, I just right in everybody's face in this industry, are there other resources, um, strategies, items we can talk about here today that would, you know, again, going back to the Goldfinch model, it's about surgical recovery or, or not even beginning the use of opioids in the beginning strategies there. What else could uh, somebody take away from, from not even starting the, the, the opioids in the first place? The biggest challenge with addiction is sometimes addiction finds us. It's not us making bad choices. There's three leading gateways to new persistent opioid use leading to addiction. So first and foremost would be prescriptions for on and off the job injuries. Mm -hmm. There are alternative medications that are non-opioid, so non-addictive. We need to challenge providers and ask if non-opioid pain medication will be suitable for ourselves and for our families. Mm. Surgery is actually the leading gateway to new persistent opioid use. Fully 9% of people on average who have surgery end up with that persistent opioid use. 9%? Yes, on average. For some types of surgery, knee replacement, that number is closer to 16%. Mm. For colorectal, like a cancer-type surgery involving uh, the bowels, that number has been 17%. Mm. And so individuals doing things under doctor's care sometimes end up with addiction the biggest challenge that I see would be the third, and that's diversion. There's three billion pills left over every year from both number one and number two. And of those pills, 90% of people who take pain medication don't properly dispose leftover pills. Mm. So some of those strategies would be drug deactivation products, mm -hmm. cleanse them from our home using these products that will destroy. And a second challenge or opportunity would be over-the-counter approval of naloxone, mm. which is Narcan. It's yep. an opioid antagonist. So asking a doctor if you get a prescription yourself or a loved one, can we co-dispense naloxone so it's there in case of an accidental overdose? And then the third opportunity would be just when you have surgery, are alternative opioid pain management strategies available? Mm. Things like multimodal pain relief would be one of those examples. John Greenwood showed me the, the, the pouch that comes along prior to surgery, a properly disposable pouch that just disintegrates is what I understand, the opioid. Are those available over the counter? Can employers purchase products yes. like that? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Okay. There's uh, various uh, resources available. There's a product called RX Destroyer. It's more in a container. Okay. There's a product called the Terra. It's the drug deactivation pouch. Okay. There you I add. I think that's the one I saw. That's yeah. probably the one you yep. saw. Yep. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, a, a strategy of employing these in, um, you know, job trailers and having them on site um, easily accessible. In a former life, we used to promote uh, the – I can't even remember the name of it, but it was the, the one day a year that they promoted really highly through the narcotics office to drop off at your, your local pharmacies. The drug take-back program. Tra take-back program. Yes. Thank you. That's transitioned now into these little pouches. You can have it anywhere at any time. Too few people participated. Most people, even myself, who's been around opioid risk reduction for the 
past 12 years didn't always remember that mm -hmm. one day a year. Mm -hmm. Some law enforcement agencies expanded. Some national pharmacy chains had kiosks back near the pharmacy. But uh, what makes this so real is how easy it is. And then it's just quickly disposing a product that you no longer use. Sure. Absolutely. Um, in the class today, I, I understanding that a speaker from the ISU Extension Office that you mentioned um, spoke about weapons security uh, and provided uh, free gun locks, I think, from what I hear, to attendees. Uh, can you speak to the importance of firearm security and the correlation to mental health and suicide prevention? Yeah, this topic around access to lethal means is a big part of harm reduction. So on the suicide prevention side, males die by suicide at a rate almost four to one to women. Women will make attempts three times more likely than men. And mm. the difference in survival is men choose more lethal means, mm. firearms being a predominant type. So what's powerful is when a gun lock is made available, people have to think about, are my guns really safe? And who has access to those firearms? And it's something that no one ever wants to think about, that their weapon could be used by a loved one mm -hmm. in an act of... Uh, self-harm, like suicide. I loved that they brought gun locks. It was a surprise to me. They hadn't told me they were doing that. Mm. It was almost um, incidental. Mm -hmm. Hey, by the way, I've got some uh, gun locks. And what I frequently see, Ben, is people aren't comfortable with the idea. And so I was normalizing the conversation. I was saying, hey, when we talk to workers about access to lethal means, we're not talking about gun control. We're talking about gun safety. And then we start to just have those conversations but having gun locks or cabinets is one. Having a firearm lock is another. There are other methods of access to lethal means. For prescription pain medication, there are lock boxes. Mm -hmm. There are gun lock boxes as well. Sure. So yeah. there's a whole host of these, and I just loved how practical it was. These actually had a label from the Veterans Crisis Line, which is part of the 988, mm -hmm. um, the former National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So that has special uh, significance as well. I asked this question to one of our other guests um, because I'm, I'm curious to know um, from the experts, when do you think that 988 number will become as easily remember recognizable as 911? I mean, my five-year-old can tell me 911 to call in the act of an emergency if something happens, 911's to call. When will 988 be that number that everybody knows about? Because I don't think a lot of people do. It's getting better. Okay, good. Um, in urban areas where there have been more billboards, where there's been more uh, public safety announcements, uh -huh. I'm seeing that happen very often. So when I do training across the country, still in some rural areas, people haven't known about 988. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one example. Recently, there were 325 employees. It happened to be outside of Iowa, but a state very similar to Iowa. And I asked the question, who do you call for a mental health or suicide crisis? There were no answers. So I said, all right, let me ask, who do you call in case of a medical emergency? And probably 50 people hollered out, 911. So I said, who do you call in case of a utility dig? Before we dig, who do we call? 811. And so someone else I threw out, who do you call if you're looking for general county-wide information? People knew 211. What number did we used to call if you wanted information? Someone said 411, right. 
that no longer exists. Right. So I came back and said, who do we call for a behavioral health or mental health suicide prevention crisis? And it shocked me that no one had known. Yeah. So we do have that disparity, but in most urban areas, when I ask that question, generally two-thirds of the hands are going up. Oh, wow. That they are aware that 988. And it's been easier to remember. And right. I'm hearing people share stories of their children learning that, either at school Good. or in some cases uh, from a family member. I think what was most important to from my understanding, was when that number was launched, it was almost perceived as maybe a, a number. You, you may be talking to somebody in California, and it, it, they're not going to be a direct resource. But from what I'm understanding, that 988 number connects you locally, close to home, to those resources. It does. The uh, network of these crisis hotlines has been nothing short of uh, amazing. 200 different uh, network providers come together. It's answered locally unless there's no available uh, capacity. And then it goes on a backup uh, chain almost. Mm -hmm. And it's been, uh, it's been incredible. One thing that's important to know is if you have a cell phone that's not from an urban area. So for myself, I'm a transplant. Um, I have a Minnesota cell phone. Mm. I've lived in Washington State. Mm -hmm. I have 651. If I call and ask for local support, I will get transferred unless I say I'm calling for someone in a particular geographic area. Oh. So that is important. Most people haven't learned. Sure. That's one of the sure. nuances of, of 988. Sure. But for the most part, the system has worked really well. Call volume is more than doubled. Response time was cut by 50%. 988 wow. is working better than expected. Good. That's great to hear. Um, we're on a podcast, and you mentioned you've done a lot of podcasts. Do you have any podcasts you'd recommend for our for our members if they're if they're looking for some additional information on on strategies to a healthy workplace? Uh, are there any particular uh, podcasts that are jumping out at you on the spot? This was on the spot question. I didn't have you prepare for this. So wow, that was. Um, you may or may not have a good answer here. You know, I don't today. I. Um, There's a lot of podcasts. Mm -hmm. I tend to listen to more on that leadership side. Mm -hmm. I tend to listen to uh, specialty uh, podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, I've been listening to one called Soft as Steel. It's a gentleman named Dennis Duran. And um, I've really enjoyed the way he interviews guests. He talks about the soft skills in our industry. I think that ties very well mm -hmm. to this workplace uh, mental health. Mm -hmm. But that was a that was I, a tough question. I'll try to put you that on was spot. really uh, spontaneous. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to chuckle about this one. I'll be uh, driving to the airport this afternoon, and I'll still be thinking. <laughs> Favorite podcast? Well, uh, Cal, I'm going to leave it there. I, I really appreciate you coming in here, helping us, um, you know, to stop the stigma, to talk openly about this. Um, you've done these education sessions for MBI. You've done our our uh, summer intern program, and you're going to be back in. August or July, I can't remember, sometime this summer for, for uh, talking to those summer interns again. Um, do you want to share with the audience how folks could get a hold of you if they, had, if they wanted to? Sure. The best way to get a hold of me is by email. It's, my name is Cal Beyer. My email is C Beyer, B-E-Y-E-R, at Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S, Murphy.com. C buyer at holmesmurphy.com. My cell phone is also the second best way to get a hold of me. That number is 651-307-7883. Happy to be a support, a resource, and just to really appreciate the partnership we've built with MBI. That's been great. 
Thank you so much, Cal. Uh, we're going to let you go there, and uh, we look forward to talking to you next time. Great to see you. Thanks again for having me. It's been real. Take care.